Hi there, my name's Matt. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here at Hope City. It's my great privilege to get to speak to you uh, this morning. Thanks for giving me your time uh, and giving me your ears. And what we've been doing as a church, um, really for the last year and a half, I think now, is work our way through Luke's gospel, that is Luke's telling of the story of Jesus, piece by piece, uh, looking at each section in turn and thinking about, what does this have to teach us? What does this mean for you and for me today? Because we don't believe this is just a, a dusty old book 2,000 years ago that has nothing to say to us. Uh, we believe that Jesus' words are just as relevant today as they ever were. They have things to uh, teach us and things to show us. And uh, so we're going to roll with that now. We're going to carry on. And we come into a section where Jesus is speaking. And uh, he has a, a story to tell. And it's a tale of reversal in the afterlife. It's a story that's meant to teach us something. And uh, Jemima's going to come and read this for us this morning. It's in Luke chapter 16. And we're going to start at verse 19. And a chapter is the, the, the big numbers you'll find in the Bible. And the verse of the small number. Luke chapter 16. And then verse 19. And that's on page 1050. If you've got one of our Bibles. Page 1050 if you've got one of our Bibles. Luke chapter 16. And starting from verse 19, and it's, uh, it's Jesus speaking to us. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. While Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Thanks very much, Jemima. And uh, the detail-oriented amongst you will notice that up on the screen there we had a different Bible translation. Sorry about that. I was debating trying to fix it live, but the chances of failure were nigh on 100%, so I decided to settle for it. Just a different um, translation. The, um, the original of this passage is written in a language called Ancient Greek, and the, the way you bring that into English um, produces different results with, um, with different kind of objectives if you're trying to go for readability or you're trying to go for word-to-word -word matching. So we just had a different translation up for you. 
Like I said, this is a story, uh, a story that's meant to teach us something, but what is it meant to teach us? What is Jesus' point here? Well, listen to Abraham in verse 25 again. Abraham replies, "Um, Son, remember that in your lifetime you receive your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. What's Jesus trying to teach us with a, a statement like that, a story like this? Is it that there's just a total reversal coming? And that everything is going to get turned upside down? That if you've got it good now, you're going to have it bad then. If you've got it bad now, you're going to have it good then in the future. Is that what he is trying to teach? But I don't think so. Because for starters, do you know what that would tell us? That would tell us, I've just got to make sure things are rotten for me right now. So I can have an awesome time later. Do you know what I need to do is get really poor really quick. Make myself miserable. Spend a lot of time crying. And then later on, it's going to be awesome. It's not quite so simple as a total reversal. Kind of woe to the rich and blessed are the poor. And let me show you why. Because the guy here that he's chatting to in the story, uh, Abraham... Well, Abraham is there with this poor man. You could say they're bosom buddies. Um, you could. Um, he's on the, Abraham is there. He's on the correct side, the good side of this giant divide. And let me tell you, Abraham was loaded. Um, this is what's said about Abraham fairly early on in his life. His name gets changed as part of the story. Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. And he was just getting going. By the time Abraham gets to the end of his story, he's like this massively rich patriarch with loads of everything. So this can't just be rich, bad, poor, good. Rich gets a a bad outcome and poor gets a good outcome, which is really good news for us since whether you feel it or not, the truth is on a global scale, you're all loaded. Uh, I found a tool this week um, which helps us think about this. It gives us a sense of where we fit in on a global scale, giving what we can to org. I invite you, have a little look just now. Plug in your numbers. It just takes a moment. How rich am I? And if you plug in your numbers, it will tell you roughly where you fit in the global scale of things. But broadly speaking, all of you are going to be incredibly well off compared to the vast majority of the world who live with so much less than we do. Relatively speaking, we live in the prosperous West. We're, we're pretty well off. So this is just a material reversal that's coming. Then we are all in this together. We're all looking at being on the wrong side of the divide. But the big message here isn't just reversal, isn't just a new world order, isn't just curses for the rich and blessings for the poor. So what is it about? What is Jesus trying to teach? Well, if you were with us last week, remember we were talking about how a new age dawns with Jesus, how he kind of divides time itself. And we see that even in things like the way we speak about the years, AD and BC. He's a divider of time. And in the new age that starts, we were talking, this is a new age not because there is a new king. Not because the king has changed his mind or changed his design for his kingdom. I think that's part of the message this story Jesus is telling us has for us. God's design for his community, his design for that to be a just and a caring community. That 
looks out for the weak and the poor. That design hasn't changed. I think Jesus is emphasizing that continuity here. You see, God's design for his people um, called Israel is laid out for them in the writings which they have passed down, records of their history, records of God speaking to them directly and through his messengers, records of uh, him acting for them and even acting against them when they've gone the wrong way. See Moses and the prophets in verse 29 here? In verse 31 here, that's a, that's a reference to these writings, these teachings. And do you know what they are? They are chock full of care and provision for the poor. For example, did you know that every third year, every person in Israel was meant to bring a tenth of whatever they had made or produced that year into a special store in their towns? And that store would provide for food and resources for the poor and the needy among them. Ancient food banks. Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29, amazing piece of regulation. For example, you were required as a citizen of Israel to lend absolutely anything that you were asked to, to somebody who was poor, to somebody who was impoverished. They come to you and say, can you lend me some food? You have to say yes. And, and those debts don't strangle them like debt does today so often because every seven years all the debts get cancelled. So if you're poor, you can ask people to lend you things and that debt ultimately gets wiped away. Deuteronomy 15, 7 to 11. For example, when you harvest a field, you have to leave the edges in the corner. You have to go over it just once, not back, and clean off every single thing. And that is so there's something left for the poor and the needy amongst the people. Just a few parts of God's design and there is more to care for and to provide for the poor. So God's design for his kingdom God's time for his kingdom hasn't changed. This is still in force. This, this is the rich man's problem here. He's not paid attention to God's design for care for the poor and the needy. And this, this kingdom design that looks after the poor and the needy, it hinges on understanding that the foundations get rewritten in God's good design. The mine of ownership, my money, my wallet, my stuff, it gets replaced with the yours of something called stewardship. And stewardship is just a fancy big way of saying you're looking after something for somebody else. It's not yours. If you're a steward of something, even if it's in your pocket, it's not yours. It still belongs to somebody else. The foundation of God's kingdom and his design for his kingdom is that everything belongs to God. It's all his. We just get to look after it for him. We get to steward it. We get to use it for a while and we get to use it how and where he directs us. So anyone familiar with the Jewish teachings and the heart and the intent of the Jewish teachings would see this rich man feasting away, ignoring the poor right at his gate and they would know that is ignoring God's design for his people. Ignoring God's call to stewardship and generosity and they will feel like it was right that he didn't get away with it. He's condemned not because he's rich, but because he ignored his duty to care for the poor with the riches he'd been given. It's worth noticing, by the way, that this is an omission that gets him in trouble. This is not doing something, something left undone that is the issue. Condemned by omission just as much as any active commission of wrong. The good that we fail to do uh, it's just as significant as the evil we do that we shouldn't. So there's a new age dawning, okay? There's a new king, but the, uh, the, the, the king hasn't changed and neither has his design. So the rich man's dereliction of his duty, his failure as a generous steward, which sees him punished, that has, that has something to say to us too. 
I guess the question we should be asking is, what does this generous stewardship look like for you and for me? Like if you would claim to be a part of God's kingdom, to sit under him as king, what does that design mean? What does it look like to live in line with that? How do we see which side of that chasm we're headed for? How do we know when we're sitting on our hands like the rich man was, ignoring the poor? Well, I think first it, gets a, it helps us to get our heads around the idea that we are dealing with somebody else's stuff. Uh, imagine if you deposit some of your money with a bank or you put some of your money into your pension and then they just decide, you know what, I think I'm going to spend that with no regard to you. Imagine you leave your car with a mate or you're going away for a while. Can you look after my car for me? You come back and he sold the wheels. It's up on bricks. You're like, what's my car? What did you do with my car? It wasn't your car. That, that's what happens when we forget that it is God's stuff we're handling. It's God's money. We're just these stewards. So let me give you a test. When you hold your bank card in front of you, when you think about the home that you live in, when you handle your paycheck or your pocket money or your birthday money, when you decide how you're going to use those things, are you thinking mine or are you thinking yours? Are you thinking, how will I choose to spend what is mine? I don't know what I shall do with my things. Or are you thinking, how would God have me spend what is his? Here's another test, okay? This is an interesting one. Can you be cheerfully generous? Or actually, is it like having the money pried out of your cold, dead hands to give something away? Does it hurt and ache and feel painful? Because in some ways, how easy you find it to give tells us something about whose stuff it is you think you are giving. If you're busy thinking this is mine, then it's really quite hard to lever that out and give it up. If you're thinking I'm just looking after someone else's stuff, in some ways it's quite easy to give away somebody else's stuff, isn't it? So watch out for the mine, hands off sentiment. God has given these things to you and pray, what does God want you to do with the things he's put in your hand? You might think, he hasn't put very much in my hand. It won't make a whole lot of difference what I do. This seems small and insignificant, but the Bible tells us that how we are faithful or unfaithful with small things reflects how we will be with big things. So God watches what you do, whether you have little or much. Shows you your heart what you do, whether you have little or much. So first we're handling somebody else's stuff, and second we need to open the eyes, our eyes to the needy at our door. You have to beware of this rich man's omission of the care he should have given to the poor. Now, in our modern world, this can seem, frankly, quite overwhelming uh, because we're so aware there's just so much need uh, around us in the world, aren't we? You only have to turn on your TV to understand how many millions, billions of people are living in abject poverty. And we do have a responsibility to the wider world, but notice in this parable, the thing that's particularly in view here is the poor beggar at the rich man's gate. Or if you think about another famous one of Jesus' stories, the Good Samaritan, do you know what he doesn't do is set up a charity to help all wounded and weary travelers everywhere. What he does is he looks after the one who crosses his path in need. So a question for you today is, has God placed a need right in front of you? Is there something immediately in your proximity? Then don't close your eyes to it. Now, how to truly help someone is genuinely a challenge. Uh, perhaps some of you have read books like When Helping Hurts or Toxic Charity. 
They explore the difficulties which go with um, helping, how easy it is to breed dependency rather than to empower people, how easy it is to solve just today's problem and make a bigger one for tomorrow, how easy it is when solving one problem to create another just because you've been careless. I think we'll find that's true even as we try and help the people right in front of us. Sometimes it's harder to truly help someone than it seems. And often, doing the right thing is so much harder and so much more inconvenient than just writing a check. So there's a challenge there, but generous stewardship to meet the need. However, there's more in this passage. There's two more things I want to tell you today. First, the king wants to warn his original audience that there are consequences to ignoring his design. You might imagine one of the big things we can learn from a passage like this is a better understanding of the details of the afterlife, how that will work, given it plays such a big part in this story. But that isn't really what Jesus is trying to do here. It isn't really the stuff he's trying to teach. That isn't the point he's trying to make. Jesus is accommodating himself to his audience. He's, he's using their mental maps of what these things look like to tell his story and teach. He's building on their understandings of how the afterlife worked, ones that were commonplace when he walked the earth. He's not laying out blueprints for us. So we should be wary at looking at this passage and trying to answer questions like, are angels going to carry us to the afterlife? Is, is half of it on fire? Can, can people on one side chat to people on the other? That's not what Jesus is trying to teach us here. His goal isn't to detail the layout. His goal isn't to answer all of our questions about what's going to happen next. But I do understand this is an area where people have lots and lots of questions. I'm sure when we get to pigeonhole later, we're going to have some questions about this sort of thing. And we're ready to do that. Um, Just to give you a moment on what is clearly and consistently taught throughout the Bible, just so we're all clear, death is coming for us all. The poor man and the rich man. Death is coming for us all. That's right here in the story. Judgment follows based on the life we've lived with bad and good options and there are no second chances golf people no mulligans no do-overs one life one's judgment so we're not getting a map of the afterlife here but we are getting the message loud and clear ignoring the king ignoring his design has consequences it will have eternal consequences so if you're here and you're ignoring the king's design you must listen to Jesus's warning he says stop While there is time, stop, turn around, and head the other way. Remember I talked about a new age? Well, the thing that's new about this age is it is a new age of grace. A time of opportunity to enter the kingdom, even for people who have completely ignored the king's design so far, like so many of the people Jesus hung out with in his life on earth. But this new age also is limited There's a limited time, a closing door. So Jesus urges you to change. Choose to change while there's time. But there's one last thing that I want to take some time on before we're done here. There's an insight for us into what could truly change someone's life. What could change the course of someone's life? The story Jesus tells seems to have been commonplace. Uh, Apparently there were a couple like it doing the rounds at the time. 
the idea of reversal between rich and poor in the afterlife. There's not a huge novelty, so I expect his listeners are going, yeah, 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 know this one. This is the one about the rich man and the poor man and the reversal, isn't it? I know that one. But what Jesus does here is he adds an epilogue that's unique to him. Verses 27 to 31 don't appear in the other versions of this story doing the rounds. The rich man, it turns out, has five brothers still living. Send a messenger to warn them, he says. Someone back from the dead. That would change the game for them. That would help them not come to this place of of torment. It's easy to believe that, isn't it? Just a little bit more information. Just a little bit more evidence. That would change the game. In this story, Abraham says to us, no. Well, it's Jesus' story. So Jesus says to us, no. Uh, It's not that we lack information. Now, it may be true that you have never read the law of Moses, or at least in its entirety. Maybe you've never read the prophets in their entirety. But you can still tell a thing or two about who God is from what he's made. You still know a thing or two about what's right and what's wrong because you are made like him in his image. Lack of knowledge is not ultimately the heart of the problem but it's not that we lack evidence either like here he says Abraham says Jesus really speaking through Abraham says they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead funny thing that because as it turns out someone is going to rise from the dead and they're not going to be convinced it's almost like he knew what was coming and it wasn't a giant surprise there is excellent evidence for the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. So not just by friendly sources who you'd imagine were biased, not just by insiders, but by outside observers, ancient historians who tried really hard to lay out what really happened, people hostile to everything Christianity was and stood for. And also the alternative explanations for what happened are really unconvincing. Like there's one called the the swoon theory that Jesus, after he's brutally beaten, uh, hung on a cross, stabbed in the side, declared dead by an expert in killing people, chucked in a cold thing with a giant rock in front of him, guarded by four Romans, sits up, says, that was a bit tough, rolls the rock away, takes on the soldiers, and, and carries on in business as usual. That is not a very convincing explanation for the evidence or, or another idea is there's just a massive group hallucination. Lots of people think Jesus is risen because they share a giant group. That's just not very convincing if you look at it. Or, or, or uh, is there a disciple heist going on? You know, if you're familiar with your heist movies, you've got like an Ocean's Eleven thing going on. The disciples, you know, being, being, being you know, amazing fishermen and tax collectors, are able to take on expert Roman soldiers, move impossible stones, and all it with the body, and then make up a total fabrication about what really happened, knowing all the time just lies. They make up this fabrication and then each and every one of them will die and suffer terribly for those lies. Is that convincing? See, that's the thing. Something must be true. So what are the options and which one is the most reasonable? If you've never checked out the evidence for the resurrection, if you've always just thought, poo-poo, that's ridiculous, people don't rise from the dead, then I encourage you to do it. And we've got a nice new black bookcase over here with a selection of free books in it which you can take any of if they're useful to you. Take them away. If you read them or give them away, that's brilliant. There's one there called Your Verdict on the Empty Tomb which will give you a run-through of some of the evidence um, from kind of inside the faith and from outside the faith if you want to check that out. If you've never looked at the evidence, look at the evidence. If you're thinking, I just need to see it for myself. I just want somebody to rise from the dead right in front of me. Thanks very much. 
Well, Jesus' message to you is that that wouldn't be enough either. Lack of information isn't the heart of the problem. Lack of evidence isn't the heart of the problem because, you see, Jesus tells us the heart is the heart of the problem. What could save this rich man's five brothers from sharing his awful fate? It's not more information. It's not more evidence. That's what Jesus says. So what is there left for you? Only a change of heart. They have to choose to listen. So what? Well, perhaps you're hanging around the edge of the faith. Perhaps you've been kind of walking alongside this for a while, exploring and considering, thinking, I just need a bit more information. I just need a bit more evidence. We try and be a church that welcomes people who are doing things like that. That's you today. We're really glad you're here. It's good to come and gather information. I encourage you to do that. It's good to consider the evidence. We've got books full of evidence over there for you. But Jesus' words show you, you are never going to get all the way. Not just with information or evidence. It's always going to take this change of heart at the end. It always takes a step of faith. Now, it's not blind faith. It's reasonable faith. That's why there is information and evidence for you. But it is faith nonetheless. Perhaps today is the day to get off the fence. While there's still time. Perhaps you've already bowed the knee to this king. Perhaps you've already committed to pursuing his good design for your life and his kingdom. What should you take away from something like this? Well, I don't think Jesus wants to discourage you here from sharing information or from sharing evidence. I don't think he says these things to to make you think, well, there's no point in telling people these things. Because Jesus' first followers, after he's gone, they have his resurrection right at the center of the message that they're busy telling everyone. They'll go on to give their lives to share that message of resurrection with anyone. Even though it isn't enough to convince someone who won't listen to Moses and the prophets. So do keep on giving your lives to sharing the information and the evidence. But I think Jesus wants you to know that this is ultimately a question of the heart. That's the key to your friends responding to the message and that's what ultimately has to change. And that raises a difficulty for us, doesn't it? Because what can you do to change somebody else's heart? Well, one thing you can do is love them uh, in in tangible ways with physical actions. Listen to them. People want to be listened to. They want to be heard. They want somebody to care about their story. Uh, Eat with them. Serve them. Share your story. Show them you care. But most of all, I think this teaches us to pray. Uh, We need to pray for their heart to be changed. We need to pray for that supernatural work that only God can do. We want to take out an old heart, and put in a new one, and only God can do that. So what Jesus has got for us here is a reminder for his kingdom's call to generous stewardship, a one that really should weigh on us, uh, a warning about how time is limited and there are consequences to ignoring the king's design But he also has an insight into how people truly change and what's in the way of that. We're going to take a moment to pray together. And then what I'm going to do is just leave you 60 seconds to consider, what does this say to you? How are you going to respond to this? What does this mean for you this week? Let's pray.
Father God, thank you for um, your good design for your kingdom, how we can see your um, heart for the poor and the needy. Thank you for the amazing opportunities you give us when you hand us talents, riches, resources, connections. Help us to see them not as mine, but as yours, and to be good and generous stewards. Open our eyes this week to what it is that we should be doing with the things you've given us. But most of all, Lord, we pray, would you change hearts? And Lord, would you change hearts uh, in this room this morning? Would you change the hearts of those we love, those we care for, those we wish would bow the knee to you? Help us to um, love them, uh, not just in our heads, but with our hands. But Lord, we pray, would you change hearts? Amen. Just 60 seconds for you now to consider... What are you going to do with this?